Hi guys, my name is Frank Chaparro, Senior Correspondent at The Block. You might know me as Frankie Scoops or Fintech Frank, but hopefully now you'll get to know me as the host of The Block's new podcast called The Scoop, made especially for decision makers and thrill seekers in the crypto market. Each week, I, along with one of my cohorts here at The Block, will talk with CEOs, innovators, and builders across the crypto market. I'd like to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Cash App. Cash App has been the number one finance app in the App Store for almost two years. It was also the first major peer-to-peer payments app to start supporting Bitcoin, and it's still the fastest and easiest way to on-ramp fiat. No more waiting five days for your ACH payments to come through. With Cash App, you can buy Bitcoin instantly. It's also a favorite of the block analyst, Steven Zhang. He uses Cash App when he goes to Chipotle and gets money back. He saves every time he eats a burrito. That keeps Steven happy, that keeps the block happy, and that keeps the crypto world informed with the best news and research in the entire market. You can also use it at Lyft, Whole Foods, Chipotle, as I said, Chick-fil-A, Starbucks, and Dunkin' Donuts. Download Cash App today from the App Store or Google Play. I hope you enjoy the episode. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for tuning into The Scoop. We are joined by a very special guest. We scooped him on his exit, I think it was a couple months ago, but he's forgiven us. He's here. He's in studio live. Joe McCann, we're very excited to have you uh, with us. I'm joined also by Mateo Leibowitz, our ether head and researcher at The Block, and we're going to be picking Joe's brain about so many different topics spanning DeFi, trading, why he's bullish on Coinbase, and a whole lot more. Joe, thanks so much for being here. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Joe, just let's, I guess the best place to start, you're a free agent right now. Indeed. You left Passport. How many months has it been? Uh, it's been about two and a half months now. Mm-hmm. So yeah. what do you, since you left, you've had a lot of free time to yeah. sort of just explore the space, possibly find new opportunities, right? Um, what, what's, what's exciting you right now? Um, certainly crypto, but also I think this this broader sort of uh, collision between the two cultures that actually comprise crypto, which is finance and technology. And I've been fortunate enough to work in both of those industries. And so what I'm seeing, certainly on the West Coast, because uh, I live in the Bay Area, is this this you know oil and water mixture of people in traditional finance and technologists kind of colliding in this most unique way, creating incredible opportunities, not just necessarily that are interesting on the financial side, right? So one of the fascinating things about crypto is that there's all of these market opportunities that get created. And a lot of, in a lot of cases, traders or investors or people that are familiar with finance see those market opportunities, but can't write code, right? Mm-hmm. And so they, it's, it's challenging for them to capitalize that on them. And then on the flip side, you have technologists that are quite literally creating all of these market opportunities and have no idea they're doing it. Mm-hmm. So in a lot of cases, the things that I'm trying to kind of hone my focus on is how can I bridge the gap between those two? Because I've been fortunate enough to be a former trader on Wall Street to you know being a former CTO and CEO and programmer for almost the past 20 mm-hmm. years. And I feel like putting those two together uh, is where I can add the most value, certainly to the crypto ecosystem, but certainly uh, to potential companies and or a company. Was Passport... Was that the first place where you were able to bridge those two um, experiences that you have together? You were kind of brought on to build out something new there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my experience there was great. They they, they brought me in to help kind of build out a broader uh, sort of, you know, quant systematic trading system. 
focused on crypto assets. Um, and that was really the first time that I got an experience of sort of like how to be a bridge between uh, traditional finance and technology, particularly as it pertains to crypto. And, you know, ha hats off to Passport for having a, a very sort of technologically progressive approach to um, how they are investing in the space. And that's ultimately what drew me there. Um, as I said, I've been a free agent for about two and a half months now. And it's really because uh, I feel like there's more things I can be doing and contributing to the space beyond sort of um, what I accomplished at Passport. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned before you came on, there's this this trend, right, of you know Wall Street and crypto and tech not understanding each other, yeah. not kind of coming together and and moving the space forward. Um, you mentioned something before we hopped on about your your company uh, Node Source yeah. and you know a large investment bank that you were working with. Yeah. Um, that that experience that you described really, I think you know, epitomizes what, what's going on. Yeah, I, I completely agree. So, so just to give uh, the listeners kind of context here. Um, so I started a company called Node Source about six and a half or ish. Now it's been a while, six and a half, seven years ago. Um, Node Source is the Node.js company. If you're a technologist, you know what that is. If you're not, you probably don't. Node.js is uh, this application runtime for building um, any type of sort of network or web application, mobile application, desktop application, et cetera. So it's basically like an engine powering software development is the easiest way to describe it. It's now the uh, biggest, open, one of the fastest growing, I should say, open source projects on earth. It's now been adopted by 100% of the Fortune 500, including folks in the investment banking space. And so... Early on, um, what we were providing was uh, support and commercial sort of products around open source. And, and I think this is an important distinction for people to understand. You know, when you hear about open source and you hear about free software, you think to yourself, oh man, it's free. Like, I don't have to pay for anything. And it's like, actually, you have to pay for a lot. And in fact, I was in, um, I was here actually in Lower Manhattan uh, a couple of years ago giving a talk at this uh, open source kind of financial summit. It was a room full of investment bankers. And trying to explain to them the responsibility that comes with using open source. And the, <laughs> it's pretty funny. Um, so I've got this room of guys and gals in suits and, and, you know, all kind of like buttoned up. And the first slide is a picture of a puppy. And people are like, why is this guy showing us a puppy? And I said, well, here's the thing about open source. Imagine the moment that I hand you a puppy and it's just, it's so soft and cuddly and it smells good. And it's, oh, it's so adorable. It's cute. And then a second after that, you're like, oh shit, I got to walk this thing. I've got to make sure it doesn't chew up my wife's shoes. I've got to clean up after it. I've got to take it to the vet. That's open source, right? Just because something is free does not mean that it doesn't have these sort of hidden costs associated with it. And that was what I was explaining to this room. And so when you go to sell open source, like we did at Node Source, we're basically providing that layer of sort of support, security, and additional tooling around open source. And as I was talking to this investment bank, they were adopting Node.js, um, Full bore. Uh, they launched an online savings account, uh, I guess, product that was utilizing it from, from day one. A lot of their legacy stuff was transitioning to it. And one of the things that I recognized was once we actually closed them, which was an incredibly difficult process, number one, they had told us, you know, you're the one out of five companies that we have brought on as vendors that are Series A-backed startups. So I was pretty proud of that. But number two, I quickly realized how incredibly difficult it is to do open source inside a tier one investment bank like mm -hmm. that. To their credit, right, we have seen in recent years, even investment banks like Goldman Sachs and Deutsche open sourcing their own code, right? Deutsche release, I think, a couple thousand lines of code of its uh, Autobahn yep. um, platform. And then Goldman Sachs 
open source some of its trading software. So we are seeing them move into that direction, but there's still there's still hurdles, right? Oh, absolutely. What, are, what, what do you see as being the biggest impediments? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think this is one of the things that I experienced at this particular organization. So you can see folks like Goldman, for example, will have a, a GitHub profile and, and a GitHub page, and there'll be a repository there. But then you'll see in kind of the little footer there, it says, oh, by the way, you can't contribute to this, <laughs> right? So it's like, Okay, you're, you're halfway there. You're, you're on GitHub. You're thinking in an open source way, but then no one can contribute to it. As pointless as a bull with tits. There you go. Uh, so that's one way of putting it. That's for sure. Um, so, so I think the, the interesting thing about how they're halfway there and halfway not is that if you dig into the why that's the case, you'll find out you go into these organizations and you have folks that are running uh, you know, legal or compliance. They've been there for 25 plus years. They're probably making pretty decent money. And in their mind, why would they take the career risk to all of a sudden open up the outside world to be contributing to this thing that they are responsible for, right? And that's one of the biggest sort of uh, structural challenges internally at these organizations is getting legal and compliance to recognize, no, no, hey, wait, we can all kind of agree. We don't have to spend two years de debating like what a license is going to look like and a contributor agreement and all this sort of stuff, right? Unfortunately, that's where it is. The second thing, though, and I think this is the, one of the most critical things, and again, this is that collision of finance and technology, is that in finance, investment banking, hedge funds particularly, it's all about closed source. It's all about my secret sauce, not telling anybody anything, keeping everything away from everyone else. Uh, even the exchanges, you want data, you got to pay for it. You want direct market access, you got to pay for it. Uh, that just doesn't exist in tech and open source and certainly in crypto. And I think that paradigm shift has to change. And I think we're seeing it, particularly at a place like Goldman, they've got what 30% of their staff now are engineers. I would say most of those men and women are in fact contributing or utilizing open source almost every day. So how do we get the cultures to coalesce? How do we bridge that gap to get banks to be more open? It's really simple. Burning Man. <laughs> <laughs> uh, On that note, uh, I, think, I think that answers the question perfectly. Well, how about, how about this? So we're, we're starting to see platforms like Numerai, which mm -hmm. are essentially open sourcing these various different um, trading algorithms emerge. Do you think there's a possibility that products like Numerai beat these um, traditional investment banks and, and trading houses at their own game and kind of uh, attract open source contributors before um, these uh, traditional... That's the hedge fund, yeah. right? They're, they're, they're crowdsourcing different trading strategies? Exactly. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so beat them at their own game before they can even kind of get off uh, the starting block. Yeah, I mean... Um my gut tells me not a chance. I, I just don't think you're going to beat Renaissance and D. Shaw and Goldman and Citadel at their game. Uh, there's a reason that they're still around doing it. Um, what I do think, though, is that the there are different business model opportunities, right? So, so if you step back for a second and look at like the the open source business model, and I kind of alluded to this earlier, is you take something that's free, but then you kind of wrap stuff around it to sell. And that could be support, that could be additional tooling, it could be hosting it, right? So imagine you're an open source developer and you create an algorithm for Numerai, um, but you have no idea how to set up like a distributed system or a cloud computing environment to run these strategies, right? There's a business opportunity. And do I think 
Goldman or Citadel will kind of provide a, hey, run your strategies here type business? I don't think so. Um, are you going to be able to create an algorithm that's going to beat Citadel? You probably already work at Citadel. Like, I mean, that's that's my guess. It's certainly possible. I just don't see that as like an immediate uh, sort of opportunity. I just see the the second step to that being these enhancements around business models and how that can actually start to change things. Because the the obvious um, question that gets raised is, well, if all these algorithms are open source, then everybody can see it. Then there's no edge. There's no advantage. And I strongly disagree with that. Uh, this is the same, you know, argument against things like technical analysis. Well, if everybody's doing it, then it just, you know, it doesn't really work or every, then it's, of course, it's, it's self-fulfilling prophecy. I just think that there is a big distinction between having skin in the game and kind of being like an academic around saying these types of, you know, pontif- pontificating these types of platitudes where you're, you're effectively saying, look, if, if, we, if we all give away these, these strategies there's no way it's anybody's going to make any money, except for the fact that when you put real money at work, you now are in a very different position than just simply talking about it. There's, there's this weird behavioral trick that happens when you have skin in the game and you put money into the market. And so when you're actually running these strategies, you may actually realize that, oh, this is really good, but not for this type of asset, or this thing is kicking ass, but only up to a certain capacity. I can only trade up to say a million dollars or $10 million or whatever that number might actually be. And I think that's one of the things that is exciting about the space is that there's this, there's this entirely new class of what I'll call trader of the future, if you will, being kind of uh, manifested today. They're not thinking of it in, I need to you know, go to Ivy League, I need to get an MBA, and then I need to go intern at you know D Shaw or Citadel or or an investment bank, and then become a trader. I think today you're starting to see so much innovation around the concept of trading uh, because of crypto. And so if we step back for a second and look at it and go, what is the the trader of the future? What does that look like? I don't even think it's like considered a trader. I would say it's somebody playing a video game right now, a 15 year old kid playing Fortnite or World of Warcraft, and them thinking digitally about virtual goods and digital goods and how those things are created and exchanged, those patterns in, in a lot of cases are the same patterns that they apply to crypto trading, right? And so by, by in being involved in that, I think um, will change the concept of why these algorithms being open source and freely available uh, are actually a good thing. So it's interesting, right? Because you, you, you outlined basically how crypto decentralized finance is pushing traditional markets in, into this direction. And at the same time, though, you know, we see the immaturity of the crypto market, especially its market structure and the tools that are available for traders. At a more micro level, thinking about your experiences at Passport and, and you know, running the systematic trading desk, what, what do you think is missing in the digital asset crypto market specifically in terms of, you know, maybe it's OMS systems that work, the, the right type of custody solutions. Yeah. Um, being in the driver's seat, what did, what were those pain points? Oh, man. Um, a, there were a lot. And I, I know that anyone, anybody that's in risk or accounting or compliance, God bless you at this point, if you're involved in crypto, because it, it is completely foreign to try to explain to people that, well, it's 24-7. There's just, there's no like end to this. Oh, and by the way, like the account balances change because we're running a staking node and that wallet address is going to get new token balance every 
12 hours. And oh, by the way, we don't know what that number will be. It's not forecastable. Oh, and by the way, you can't just go like to a website and check it out because it's a privacy coin and therefore it's shielded from you. I mean, like it, 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 it on the one hand creates a massive opportunity for service providers. On the other hand, it's a friction point for, I think, institutional or traditional asset allocators and investors to get into the space because the infrastructure around just core reporting, accounting, et cetera, is not there. And I know um, uh, my- How but, do you do it? Like, well, what tools did you use? I mean, I had to build my own. Like that was really, so this is, again, this is, on the one hand, it's like uh, build buyer partner to move fast in a lot of these cases. This is a case with pretty much any business. And one of the reasons that I even, before I took the job passport, I started building, well, let me back up. I like to sleep like most people and crypto doesn't enable you to do that if you're trading, right? Like it's, it doesn't stop. And one of the worst feelings is like getting long in a position, you're really excited about it. And then you wake up and it's down 30% the next day and you slept for six hours. Right? So I actually started to build my own sort of like real-time risk management monitoring system purely out of self-interest, right? Just because I actually needed it. I, I'm, I don't think everybody has that ability to do that. It takes a lot of time. It takes skill to actually write code to be able to do that kind of stuff. And so um, whether it was at Passport or it's even today or anybody else that's out there, you, you still have to pretty much do this yourself, which again, to me, sort of underscores the opportunity around all these additional biz- businesses and business opportunities that exist around crypto, right? So whether it's accounting, whether it's trading, whether it's you know tying into... Uh, you know, a um, an order management system um, that is already currently in existence at a hedge fund or an investment bank or whatever it is. None of that stuff exists, and it's very, very difficult to do it in a one-off sense. In fact, these types of products, frankly, should be open sourced because that will actually draw broader adoption and, frankly, standardization across the board of how to do these things. And I think this is one of the key things that I recognized while building things uh, at Passport and even previously to Passport is that there is no sort of one-stop shop crypto utopia for developers. There's just, you don't know what exchange to go to. You don't know which projects to use. You don't know which frameworks to use. You don't know the best practices around security or scaling. Uh, If you're a trader, for example, I I met with um, a guy out here in New York uh, probably about a year ago, way smarter than me, PhD, math, quant trader uh, for about past 15 years. And the thing that he told me was, he's like, you know, I see all these opportunities in crypto. I just don't know how to execute on them. I go, what do you mean? He says, I don't, I, I, I don't understand cloud computing. I don't understand distributed systems. I've been writing code to be co-located into an exchange this entire time. I just write to one specification and plug in and I'm done. Here's a situation where that doesn't exist. You know, so for, for example, the, I saw a lot of folks, and I think even Coinbase, you know, put a bullet in their Chicago project with the high-frequency, low-latency matching engine team. You say, well, why did they do that? It was such a big mistake. If you actually know how to trade, you'll recognize that high-frequency, low-latency is not important in crypto. Not yet. It might be at some point, but not yet. You know what's more important? Determinism. Mm-hmm. Can I confirm that my order was filled at this time on this exchange or across and number of exchanges, right? Because this is the big distinction between trading in crypto and trading in traditional asset classes is you have N number of exchanges. And the, the price discrepancies are different between those. And also your operational risk between, say, trading on, I don't know, you see the nose with Poloniex recently, like trading on Poloniex versus Binance versus Coinbase. How do you factor that into a model? 
all of this blows up spreadsheet jockeys, right? They have no clue on really how to manage this kind of stuff. That's and I part think, of the reason why they shut down that project, right? Because it wasn't high on the priority list for traders and what they need. So I don't have uh, insight into that, but that would be my guess. No, they it's, did. Yeah. Is that, is that yeah, is actually they, why? They they, they, down, there's yeah. no demand for it, right? Yeah, because yeah, yeah. I, rem- I, I met with them and I met with another uh, set of guys that were building a high-frequency, low-latency exchange in Malta and the same sort of thing. And I'm like, well, we're, you know, he's like, yeah, it's going to be sub-microsecond execution. You're going to have all these different order That's types. That's not what people are worried about. That's not Nobody what they care about. order types right now. No, exactly. I mean, you, you mentioned it, and, and it's funny because a lot of these problems, right, they apply to Bitcoin, Ethereum, the, even the, you know, the highest market cap coins. Yeah. I can't imagine, and Teo brought this up, just thinking about, you you often post charts on mid-micro caps. That almost compounds the issues in trading this market, just thinking about low liquidity. And like yep. you mentioned, what we saw with Poloniex, there totally. was, um, you know, margin lenders lost $13.5 million. How do you trade? It's one question. How do you trade Bitcoin, Ethereum, et cetera? It's another question entirely of how you do it with, with some trade of these. Nano. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you trade yeah. Nano. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> so um, great question. So on the one hand, the idea of trading assets like Nano or, or, call them or clam clam <laughs> yeah so so this is one of the yeah, clams uh this is one of the reasons why not your I, clams not your shell right? yes exactly that was, hey, there you uh, go <laughs> uh this is one of the reasons why i i am convinced that anyone that is trying to find ways of of mitigating or minimizing their risk in trading in crypto has to have some form of of systematic or real-time monitoring across their systems. And the reason I say that is that like let's assume that you have a a long thesis on Bitcoin. You're just, you know, Bitcoin's going to go to some astronomical price in the future. I just want to accumulate more Bitcoin. Okay, well if that's the case then you should be trading alts, right? Why? Because sometimes alts tend to outperform Bitcoin and you can actually gain more Bitcoin when alts outperform. But how do you capture that value? Are you going to go trade clams, which is incredibly thin or, or some, something like nano or any of these other assets? I, I'm just, I'm not promoting anything, by the way. I'm just simply saying these assets. Um, this, this podcast is sponsored by clams. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, we're waiting for the check still for that sponsorship, by the way. Um, so I, I guess my, my point is, is that if you have a if you have a strategy in place that you're like I want to accumulate BTC, therefore you need to trade alts. Therefore, I need to be able to capitalize on some of these moves. One of the most shocking and revelatory things to me about trading crypto is that it's incredibly formulaic, right? So if you look at a chart, you can see and let's just take Ripple for example. This 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 thing will just fade for months and then spike like whatever, 200% and then it fades for another month. So the majority of the alpha that you can capture in that is that like one or two days that it's moving. And if you just happen to be sitting in front of your computer at the right moment when that's happening, then you can capture that value. Guess what's really good at doing that? Computers, right? If you have a system that's automatically all the time running, monitoring all of these different assets, and you created signals to be able to capture that kind of stuff, now you can actually trade the nano or trade these other sort of thinly, thinly traded micro caps, et cetera, to capitalize on those moves. Otherwise, yeah, I mean, people ask me like, do you, do, I was doing a, a, an interview for a product manager at Gnosis the other day because they were talking about like prediction markets and how traders think about it. And he's like, can you talk about the fundamental research you do in an asset before you trade it? I'm like, I don't do any, right? This is a completely behavioral speculative asset class today. And so even more so the reason to have, in my opinion, a systematic strategy attached to it. We have a we have a couple of questions when it when it comes to that exact topic. Sure. So um, 
obviously, well, at, at Passport, you were a trader by profession, but a trader dealing with uh, digital assets or crypto assets. Is there actually any ideological resonance there for you? Are you kind of perma-long Bitcoin? Oh, sure. Yeah, I mean... What's your thesis there? Yeah, great. So uh, we were talking a little bit about this. So, so I don't have a degree in computer science. I don't have a finance degree. I have a degree in philosophy, which uh, doesn't really get you a job. It gets you into law school. Uh, but my focus was in logic and, and in, in kind of uh, going down that sort of philosophical rabbit hole, if you will. One of the things that I've really resonated with is this idea of um, unbundling and decentralization across myriad things historically. So there's a guy, uh, Niall Ferguson is his name. He wrote this book called The Square and the Tower. Highly recommend reading it. It's super, super relevant to crypto. Um, it's basically, in a nutshell, I'm, apologies, Niall, this is a terrible butchering of it, but it's it's basically, this. there's a pendulum swinging from centralized hierarchical structures to decentralized non-hierarchical structures. And that has happened historically over time. So for example, if you take in the 1500s, if you look at where literacy rates increased uh, in Europe, it was it was next to these, call them nodes on a network, which were actually where printing presses were around Europe. So you had literacy, you had uh, increase in obviously intelligence, et cetera, by having these like decentralized systems, meaning set of uh, printing presses all throughout Europe, um, enabling folks to become smarter and not just listen to say the Roman Catholic church, for example, that in my opinion, that same sort of pendulum swinging around decentralization is happening to currency for the first time in human history. And for me, I think that's a great thing. If we look at the past 50 years and the great experiment that is fiat currency today, um, there are only a few people that benefit from that. And I think we know who they are. And it's certainly not the majority of people. And I, I believe, uh, you know, wholeheartedly that a decentralized currency of sorts that's not pegged to any sort of uh, central bank or politician's whim is incredibly valuable for the future of humanity and what it unlocks in terms of having to have uh, a trust minimized relationship with your global neighbors that has to be good longer term, right? So so to be very clear, I am 110% fully bought in on the concept of Bitcoin and the concept of broader, I would say, crypto assets or cryptocurrencies and trust-minimized networks. As a trader, though, I almost don't care, right? And I think this is a clear distinction for people to understand is that like, there are, I have this kind of running joke with folks. I mentioned this, I think, on another podcast where there's, there's this belief that, uh, do I want to be a prophet, P-R-O-P-H-E-T, or make a profit, right? And if, you, if you're, it's cool if you just want to be academically right. Like, that's great. Like, you can argue till you're blue in the face about why you're right, and the market doesn't give a shit, right? And once you recognize that, that, oh, I can still be philosophically aligned with Bitcoin, but I can also understand that maybe I should sell some here at 9,100. So it's not a moral to short Bitcoin. Sorry? It's not immoral to short Bitcoin. It's absolutely not immoral to short Bitcoin. But I, 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 and in fact, if you have a one-sided market, you're doing yourself a disservice to the folks that actually want to acquire Bitcoin. Going back to the, this ideological alignment, is that more... So, so, so you were talking about this separation between kind of the state and, and the free market when it comes to uh, some kind of uh, money, sure. store of value. Is that what interests you or is it the formal 
uh, issuance rate and, and monetary policy of Bitcoin, because Bitcoin does have a, a rather particular monetary policy. So, so I don't think it, I think it's both. I, I, mean, I, I think on the, on the one hand, you know, there, the, the monetary aspects of Bitcoin and having a finite fixed amount of supply um, is a good thing. I mean, when I try to explain to folks that are completely not in Bitcoin or in cryptocurrency or that are not technical about like, hey, why, uh, why, why would I invest in something that like, I don't know what is and nobody really seems to care. And like, why should I believe in this? Like, the only reason Bitcoin has value is because everybody believes in it. It's like, well, yeah, that's the story you've been told about that crispy US dollar you have in your wallet right now. The only reason that it has value is because we believe in it, right? Bitcoin to me changes that because it's math. And if you believe in math, it's really difficult to kind of uh, disrupt the, the belief that this is some made up thing. Now, does it help that there are memes and that there's a set of behavioral uh, sort of standards that come with investing and buying and selling Bitcoin? Of course, that's the case with, I think, any asset that has any sort of form of value. But, but longer term, you know, if you look at Bitcoin relative to any other asset, that's whether it's a store value, a method of exchange, et cetera, there has been nothing that existed that is kind of, kind of mathematically complete like, like Bitcoin. And I think that is, is one of the most attractive features to it. But, but is it the, the maths itself or the finite supply element? Because you can have various different issuance rates when it comes to these cryptocurrencies. And we're starting to see a divergence of issuance rates across the crypto asset landscape. Sure. So when it comes to Bitcoin, I think having the fixed supply that they actually have is a good thing long term for hopefully all the reasons. For memetic purposes? Or Sorry, from what? For, for, like memet- for the memes, basically. Well, <laughs> um, no. I mean, look, meme or like, it's, like, it's a sense? Issuance rate. So, like, look at look at it this way, right? So, like, assume we know 100% of all gold on the planet today. We just have it stockpiled somewhere, right? Now we can understand how scarce or not that asset actually is. Whereas we understand the scarcity associated with Bitcoin. Period. In fact, it's it's less than 21 million, as as most of us know, because there's so many that are lost, right? So that aspect to me is actually more compelling than the memes associated with it, right? Now, I'm not going to downplay the power of memes. Like memes, memes have been around for a long time. It's just they're, they're very much sort of codified in the way that we actually think about crypto. Um, but I don't think that's kind of like the, the thing, right? I think there's, there's something around the scarcity of Bitcoin and how that translates to a clear sort of mathematical formula that makes a lot of sense to folks that want to see this as some uh, store value or medium exchange or et cetera. Maybe it worked. Pivoting over to DeFi land. Before DeFi, I have a couple more questions as far as um, fundamental value and then kind of the more traditional uh, technical analysis setup that you use. Um, So we're starting to see a a, a real um, proliferation of uh, on-chain focused metrics and hybrid uh, on-chain exchange uh, focused uh, metrics. Um, some of the more famous ones come from uh, the folks at Adaptive Capital. I actually have a couple of metrics of my own as well. Um, so are these things that you monitor as well and, and use as part of your wider trading strategy? Um, do they matter right now? Would they have actually predicted this, this latest move um, from, from some of my research that they, they wouldn't? Um, and and do you see them playing a, a, a more important role in in the kind of medium long term? Sure, it's a great question. Um, so 
first and foremost, especially the folks at Adaptive, Maraud, and those folks are brilliant. And they're absolutely brilliant. This is one of the things for me that is so exciting and stimulating about being in crypto is that there's no rules, right? There's no framework. There's no set of standards. And you have exceptionally smart people doing the investigative analysis to try to understand. And I think this is a key concept just in humanity. Maybe this is my philosopher and me speaking here is that human beings desire understanding why things are the way they are. And you see this all the time in crypto, let alone other things. You'll see some, you know, fly-by-night website post, Bitcoin jumps 10% today and here's why. It's like, no, 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 no. You don't actually know why. You want to know why. And the reason you are clicking as the user on that article is because you want to understand. There's no one that has this figured out. There's like, there today it went up because there were more buyers and sellers. That's really the only true answer. And it's indisputable. I, I don't see how you can say some fundamental catalyst happened or et cetera. That also applies to these new types of indicators and, and signals, in my opinion. It doesn't mean to me that they're not valuable. It, does, it just doesn't imply that they can predict what's going to happen. I think what's more important is that you stick with what works for you. So for example, I looked into a lot of these, call them crypto native indicators, on-chain analytics, wallet analytics, and forensics. Those are, they're valuable, but not in an individual sense. You know, I think a lot of people are looking for the easy button when it comes to crypto. What's the one thing I can just look at and go like, yep, I'm just going to buy, I'm going to sell or whatever. And I tweeted this thing the other day about the 200-day moving average. And if you go back historically, uh, which is not very long for Bitcoin, but if you go back historically and you look at the times when the 200-day move average started to turn upwards, and if you just bought Bitcoin at that price, and then sold at the point where Bitcoin started, the 200-day move average started to turn down, the returns were astronomical. That might be the dumbest, simplest indicator you could possibly have for any asset is the 200-day moving average. I know when we were used to trade on the street, we would call it you know moving average monkeys, folks that would just focus on it. And it's like, I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to argue with a 23,000% return by just buying when the 200 day turns up and it turns out. And so my point is, is that it's not that there isn't value in a lot of these indicators and, and kind of new, uh, newly designed metrics. In fact, I think it's super healthy for the ecosystem because what we'll find is certain things work and certain things don't and the things that work get standardized. And that's what I think we need a lot more of. In the meantime, I have tried to overcomplicate my strategy, believe me, it doesn't work. The simplest things tend to work in crypto, and it's the only market I've ever seen this actually exist. Do you think that, I mean, when we look across the at a more macro level, the OTC market-making trading world in crypto, a lot of funds that are a lot of trading firms that were at the top of the pack, like Circle, DRW, they're seeing either people leave or the general companies and financial problems. You know, we've reported, uh, you know, the 10% of folks leaving Circle, um, we reported yesterday uh, the head of global, the, the global head at DRW has yep. left. Um, what do you think is happening just at a macro level in the trading world? Um, it seems like the, those at the top are now, you know, struggling and, and other things are happening. Yeah. I mean, and this is just my own opinion. It's purely speculation. It's not grounded in fact whatsoever, but I got to believe that an industry, an ecosystem, an asset class that is literally programmable money shouldn't have people picking up a phone to make a trade. Mm -hmm. That's just my personal belief. And so 
is there an opportunity to do white glove institutional buying and selling of you know large block size orders? Absolutely. I just see that as a commoditized business eventually. That That is going to zero, in my opinion, over time. I do not think it happens overnight. I think it happens over time. And in a lot of cases, it's just because, number one, there are, I don't even know how many OTC desks nowadays globally. Uh, there, there are tons, tons. tons right? Yeah. And so what happens when you have a saturated market like that? Man, and we're already seeing spreads compress and, and the money coming in depreciating. How do you position yourself as a firm in this market versus maybe, you know, 2017 when it was, I mean, the money was just pouring in as an OTC dealer. How do you, if you only knew a guy that was a trader and a technologist to help it. No, I'm just kidding. Um, no, honestly, I think, Hire Joe. yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, I, I honestly think, um, this is this is this is the kind of this I would say the standard cycle for getting technology integrated into these systems. I, I think if you're a if you are in this space and you're running a desk of any sort, you have to be thinking through how am I going to uh, enable and integrate technology into say my OTC desk uh, or my trading in general. Uh, if you don't, you will be at a loss or at a massive competitive disadvantage relative to the folks that do. I mean, we saw this in the late 90s and and early 2000s with the shift towards algorithmic trading and ECNs and technology-enabled trading. It just decimated so many other folks because they weren't ready or willing for whatever reason to adopt technology. So in my opinion, if you're a firm that is starting to see, you know, margins compress or you feel like your your business is about to become commoditized, it's already becoming commoditized, you may want to consider actually integrating technology solutions uh, into your organization. Finally, what I will say is I met with I have met with a number of kind of these these smart order routers or uh, companies like Tagomi that are, I believe, attempting to be like the one-stop shop prime broker, which I think is a great idea. In a lot of cases, I've found OTC desks um, will just literally, you know, use, you know, RouteFire, coin, coin routes, SFOX, whatever, in any of one of these sort of uh, smart order routers. And they'll be taking the the order and taking then they just go, yeah. yeah. So it's just it's like- our relationships, right? Yeah, it's, exactly. Uh, it's, it, and so there is something to be said about the trusted relationship. But it might not be about relationships anymore. Like DRW provides that great case study where yes. you see every single James Rudecky, Bobby Cho, the relationship guys are gone. Sure, but there's, al- there's always got to be some value in having a, a human voice on the on the other end of the phone, right? So, so I would say today, yes. But ultimately, like if we think about the broad macro picture of crypto. We're talking about trust-minimized systems, right? I, I don't want to have to trust the individual in a Telegram or Signal chat in Hong Kong to make sure that I get my Bitcoin. Like, I mean, it's just, there, there's something odd about that. And so I think for maybe, you know, highly sophisticated, high net worth individuals, family offices that just want white glove service, that just want to be able to buy and sell with a, I think that is going to exist, but that's probably going to be an extension of the business, not a core piece of the business. And I think that's the big distinction is how do you recognize, number one, that being kind of white glove institutional OTC desk for your top clients is more of a feature as opposed to a core business because that core business is getting commoditized out. Sure. Before we do move on to DeFi, and I, and I do want to discuss DeFi, I think some of our listeners would, would really appreciate if you could just briefly go through uh, and explain 
the contango backwardation relationship <laughs> that, that you're often yeah, posting yeah, about. Yeah, there really seems to be a lot of confusion around that. <laughs> I think it's time that we finally clarify sure. what those words even mean and uh, why they're important. Why, why they're important. important sure. how, how you can use them in your training strategy. Um, okay, so first and foremost, um, as I mentioned earlier, this is just an indicator that I use. It will very likely not be relevant at some point in the future, but right now it is. And so what is the difference between backwardation and katango? What, what the hell am I even talking about? So the easiest way to describe this, and I'm sure there are way more qualified people to describe this in you know, very distinct detail um, than me, uh, but the way that I think about it is the following. If you have an asset today, spot price, you can go on a Coinbase or whatever and just buy Bitcoin at, say, 8000 bucks. Great. But now there's an opportunity to buy a futures contract that's six months from now that says, hey, you can buy Bitcoin at $8,100. Guaranteed price in six months, you can buy it for that. That's a $100 delta between the spot price and the futures price. But more importantly, because that $100 delta is positive, meaning you're paying more in the future, the sentiment that that states is that there is a bullish sentiment associated with that. They're basically saying it's 8,000 now, but in six months, man, if I can get it for 8,100, that's, that's a steal, right? I believe it's going to be higher in the future. That is a state of contango. Backwardation is the opposite of that. If you buy it at 8,000 and the futures contract is at say 7,900, that's a delta of minus 100. That's a belief that mm, maybe it's a little overpriced right here. Right at eight thousand today, I believe like in the future I'm going to buy it for seventy nine hundred. That's a better deal. That's the state of backwardation. Why does this matter? Why is this important? I don't know. <laughs> in crypto, again, this is a lot. Like no one has. If anybody tells you they've got it figured out, they're full of shit. I, I'm I'm being just very honest with you. Is that I started capturing this data to analyze it and just to kind of see is there are there trends here. And so what I've been doing for the past I don't know how many weeks now or months, I've been capturing every single minute the spot price and the futures price for two particular futures contracts on BitMEX. And when I analyze the data, what I see is, is that when there is a prolonged state of contango, which is that you know, bullishness, spot price tends to continue to rise. When there is a sustained state of backwardation, spot price tends to drift lower. I, I, I don't know why. It's just simply for me a sentiment indicator. And what I've found though is that by capturing that on a per minute basis, I've been able to see in multiple occasions, not one or two sort of anecdotal one-offs, multiple occasions that one minute before spot tends to dump or spike, the futures contracts either spike massively into Katango or drop massively into backwardation. And so for me, I see that as an opportunity to trade on. If I have 60 seconds of data that is going to help forecast, in a lot of cases, a rather large move, I want to utilize that. But if I'm not sophisticated enough as a trader or as a technologist to be able to capitalize on that, then I want a broader sentiment view. So the sentiment view to me is what's most important about this concept around backwardation versus Contango. And furthermore, I'll finalize by saying this, it is not an exact science. In a lot of cases, people will say, well, yeah, there's a reason that it's in Katango because futures traders are hedging against their long exposure, like blah, blah, blah. No, I don't care. Like, I don't care if you're, you could be totally right about that. Mm -hmm. All I'm doing is looking at what the data is telling me and the data is telling me 
bullish sentiment, bearish sentiment, trading opportunity, go. And that's all that actually matters to me. It's, that's interesting. It's, it's definitely interesting, especially because spot volume massively outweighs futures volume right For now. now exactly. so, but, uh, but what Joe is describing is kind of the futures market leading spot. Um, Potentially, yeah. I mean, and again, like I don't want to say in some cases it could be miners hedging. In some cases it could be actual traders, right? Are are being opportunities. Like at the end of the day, I don't really care because what I'm looking for is an opportunity to trade on to get a better sense of how I'm feeling about the market. And I've been doing, I've been trading long enough to know that there is no, you know, silver bullet indicator, signal, et cetera. It's how you use it in concert. So for example- Do you think price discovery is moving to like derivative markets? Mm, I don't know if it's moving there. I, I There's a significant uptick in futures trading. We saw it at CME. We see even on Deribit, which is a, an exchange that does options and futures trading, a huge amount of open interest around options. The, like So we are, I, I think there's certainly mm. more activity there. I don't know if it's where things are going. Um, but the- the, the, the most fascinating part about how futures and options are starting to actually influence price, not affect it, but influence it, um, is that when you take the data that I've been mentioning, like the backwardation or contango data, or futures data, et cetera, and, a, and, and sort of marry that or in concert with other data points, right? So for example, last week, uh, I posted on Twitter that uh, the weekly candle uh, so there's, there's a whole study around candlesticks as well. I won't go into it. That's a whole other separate <laughs> podcast. But in essence, um, the Bearish weekly engulfing the, 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 the weekly <laughs> the weekly candle uh, was put. That's a good. That's a good title. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the weekly candle put in what's called a doji. Okay, and a doji tends to show indecision or a lack of kind of direction. And in a lot of cases, it can be the the point where it's the end of a trend. And so I, I tweeted this, and so I was like, this to me feels like maybe we reverse a little bit or we trade sideways. And then when I tweeted it, the response from crypto Twitter, naturally, was extreme bullishness. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, this is going higher, the parabola, blah, 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 all these reasons. And I was like, that's a second indication that this is a top, right? So, you ha- so, <laughs> so, so, so that's the second thing. Now... I'm seeing sustained drawdown in the contango. The contango was really, really high. It started to come back closer and closer to zero, which means that eventually it'll flip into backwardation. And guess what happened when we dumped earlier this week with Bitcoin? We flipped immediately into backwardation heavily and spot price dropped like 10%, right? Yeah. So those three things in concert, as a trader, it's hard to systematize that, but it is possible. Sentiment analysis is kind of weak on Twitter. I don't recommend it. But the point is, is that like, I tweet something, I see a doji, I tweet it, the crypto Twitter tells me I'm wrong, that it's super bullish. And then we have the thing happen with futures and now we're down 10%. Like, I'm not saying that's why it worked, but it's hard to look at it and go, it didn't work. Sure. Interesting. So you're a board director at Dharma, right? You're paying attention. Now. Advisor. Advisor. Yes. Which, which is, means what? What are you advising them on? So uh, just, well, effectively anything, right? Like, um, so Dharma, for those of you who don't know, they're in the DeFi space. They're the simplest way to do lending for crypto assets. Uh, they are an open source business, right? Not quite. Well, hold on. So you don't have to be 100% open source to be an open source business. Like, I don't know if you guys are familiar with this company called GitHub. GitHub was acquired by Microsoft for like $7.5 billion dollars. They're not 100% open source, right? So my, my point is, is that I think the, the folks at Dharma, uh, Nadav and Brennan are brilliant. They're absolutely brilliant. 
Um, but what I like about them, which is refreshing to see in Silicon Valley, is they're they're humble enough to know that they want advice and counsel from people that have either done it before or that have a different perspective on things or whatever. And so what I do is I'm hey I'm I'm your utility player. Like you need me to help with operational stuff, talk about fundraising, talk about product stuff, whatever it might be, promote stuff, whatever it might be. That's how I can actually uh, add value to folks like Dharma, Decanet, and a handful of other companies that I'm advising. Why do you prefer Dharma over some of the other lending protocols out there? I'm thinking Compound. I'm thinking um, Nuo. I'm thinking DYDX. DYDX. Yes. Uh, obviously, different kind of structures. Those are more sure. fixed, uh, uh, variable rates, variable terms. Um, but they do have slightly more emphasis on the on the open source side. Sure. So what do you like about Dharma? And and the second question is, um, you know, one of the main things that people are using these lending protocols for right now is uh, leverage, yep. right? Uh, you're a trader. Are you actually using these services yourself for leverage? So uh, so there's two questions there. Why do I like Dharma versus the others? And the second one, am I using it for leverage? So the first is, um, it's not that I don't like DYDX, Compound, or Set Protocol, or any of these other ones. Actually, set protocols a little set bit different. Protocol. Yeah, it's a little bit different. But point being is that like it's not that I don't like them. It's that what I like about Dharma is that I feel like they're focused on uh, the user first. And it's not that DYDX has a bad experience or Compound has a bad experience. But when I when I say that the user first, they're looking at opportunities for getting people into crypto, enhancing that that experience around crypto. But they have a very tailored product design sense. So in my colorful That's background, your background is, yeah, UI, UX. exactly. So I worked at a company called Frog Design. Uh, it's kind of like if you are familiar with IDEO, they're kind of hand in hand, but Frog was been around for like 50 plus years. Um, phenomenal experience working at that place, but I have a, a huge sort of affinity for well-designed products and experiences. And I feel like Dharma puts that first, you know? So when I started NodeSource, uh, I could not, ship a shitty enterprise business software product. Like I just refused for it to look like crap and not, and not function well. And I feel like that's uh, front and center for, 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 for Dharma. But more importantly, Dharma to me feels like the set of primitives that you need for DeFi. Whereas Compound is fairly specific, DYDX is fairly, fairly specific, margin tokens, et cetera, as opposed to like um, Dharma being this like broader lending platform and the set of primitives that can extend from that. So for example, and it's not to say that Compound or DYDX could not do this, but I think one of the, the key distinctions around why I'm so excited about Dharma is that if you look at the current cycle, if you will, of DeFi lending, it's so new and nascent. There's still lots of stuff to figure out, lots of stuff to solve for. But recently they announced CDP refinancing, right? So, so let's let's let that sink in for a second. We are, what, a year into this barely, maybe a year plus into this sort of DeFi lending space. We are now at the second iteration where people are saying, oh, you parked a bunch of ETH in your CDP and your rate sucks. Yeah, we, you can refinance that with us. That to me is a massive uh, sort of monumental moment for DeFi because what you're seeing is maturity in how DeFi is actually growing. And to me, Dharma is uh, is leading the pack in that sense. 
Well, he didn't answer your other question about whether or not. Oh, do I use margin or not? So uh, I do have some positions in Dharma, of course. It's an, it's, 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 as, a, as a lender or a borrower? As a lender. Okay. Yeah. So I, I, I lend today. Uh, I mean, the rates are like absurdly good. So yep. you would be silly not to. I think the challenge is, is that, and, I, and I've spoken with members of the team over there um, about this, is that there are lots of people willing to lend and fewer people willing to borrow. And so we're trying to figure out how to make that market uh, a little bit more efficient, I think is so, going to be a key thing. And now that they've stopped subsidizing rates as well, they, they kind of have to just... Yeah, welcome to Silicon Valley. I mean, like, <laughs> yeah. so, so this, I, I love this. I was having this conversation the other day because, um, you know, if you live in San Francisco over the past kind of decade, you have you could have signed up for every free meal delivery service, every free car cert, like you name it. And you you could have, you just basically got free VC money to like live off of for, for a really long time. That's kind of what we're seeing a little bit in a lot of these Silicon Valley VC-backed DeFi startups or crypto startups is that they are utilizing the Silicon Valley playbook, which I agree with, to drive growth and adoption, et cetera, but they're doing it in a subsidized sense, right? I see nothing wrong with that. We're seeing the same thing in, in centralized uh, you know, crypto lending with BlockFi offering. Oh, no, there you go. Right? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. All right, so since I promised at the beginning, and I don't want to be a liar, sure. we're going to talk about you sent us... Um, which I didn't read through the entire thing, but a Shame 40, 50, I know, I'm a terrible student, <laughs> terrible student, uh, slideshow yeah. on Coinbase. Yeah. You are very familiar with the firm. You know a lot of people there. Yeah. You're, you're out there in, in, in the Valley. Um, t- talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah. Wh- why you're bullish on Coinbase and, and how sure. they could potentially be basically a one-stop shop for everything as a way to... Yeah, so, yeah, it's, it's a great question. So, um, so... Prior to Passport and even while I was at Passport, one of the things I recognized while building out a lot of these sort of quant trading systems, systematic platforms, et cetera, is that there is just so much missing from a developer's experience around building anything around crypto that something or someone or some entity needs to exist to kind of be this one-stop shop crypto utopia for developers. And that doesn't necessarily just mean, oh, let's expose some APIs so you can trade on our exchange. That is actually uh, being the kind of the industry leader or pioneer around best practices and standardization. So for example, if you want to go build a trading application today, what exchanges can you trust in terms of their volume? Where, where, can, you get, where can you get a sense of like, oh, this, this seems legit. Well, you could read the, the, uh, the work by um, Bitwise, they, they, amazing. Those guys are incredible. The incredible report they've done. But like, if I'm a developer, I'm not reading a 50 page document that feels like it's geared towards the financial industry. I want to read documentation or I want to have a trusted source of information. And the reason that I believe that Coinbase is in the best position to do that is one, they have 25 million plus KYC AML uh, clients and growing. Uh, two, they have a huge custody business. Three, they are in Silicon Valley. So they have engineering talent and they have the kind of engineering-led culture that a lot of uh, very powerful technology companies um, have had. And if there's an opportunity for someone to say, hey, we want to not only standardize uh, best practices around security, around cloud computing and distributed systems, but also we're just going to provide, say, I don't know, fully audited tick data so that you can test your strategies for for free, even if you don't trade on Coinbase, right? 
why not provide this type of information? And I think that a lot of this gets back to like that, well, that'll never work because that's a business model, right? Like, like Bloomberg and all these other exchanges, they, they sell this data. Why mm-hmm. would they just give away free audited tick data? Because it's, it's, it's bringing people to their platform. And if they can start to do something like that, uh, I think that it's a home run for them. There's no one out there today, in my opinion, uh, that is providing developers or third-party integrators the one-stop shop for building, period. Whether it's building on their ex- for trading on their exchange or not, there's just no one out there doing that. And Coinbase, to me, feels like, given the culture that they have, the engineering prowess that they have, their balance sheet, the number of KYC ML customers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that they are in a primed position to actually capitalize and being that sort of one-stop shop crypto utopia. Interestingly enough, we are, we are actually seeing a bit of that in the decentralized exchange world. So ZeroX has a, has a pretty formal market maker program. Um, they're trying to make things as easy as possible for developers. Correct. Now, here's the challenge with that. If I'm a developer, why would I build on a DEX today? There's no liquidity. There's problems with manipulation. Exactly. There's exactly. scammers. So it, 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 the equivalent would be, hey, I'm a mobile app developer. I'm going to build a phone for Windows Phone. Like you're, you're not going. That just makes no <laughs> well, sense. Well, let's let's ask another question then. How do you think about the decentralized exchange landscape, and how do you think about the different trade-offs that that various different protocols are, are, are making? So whether that's Xerox protocol and all their relays, yeah. and then you have uh, Uniswap, which is uh, taking off with that automated market market maker model. Yep. Um, recently, I just wrote about DutchX as well, which uses batched auctions, mm-hmm. um, which I'm sure you find very interesting. Have you played around with them? Do you see a future in them? What's it actually going to take to bring mm-hmm. institutional volumes onto these exchanges? And I think that question kind of applies more broadly to the DeFi space as a whole. Um, You know, we were just talking about Dharma earlier. They have various obstacles that they need to overcome before they start attracting institutional volumes onto their exchanges. Right. So to their platforms. Yeah, it's a great question. And and so like, here's the unfortunate truth for a lot of DEXs today is that I know of zero institutions that trade on DEXs. Well, they can't. That's the thing. Exactly. And so that's the problem, right? Is that Liquidity begets liquidity, and if I can't trade on there, then there's less liquidity, and then therefore I have less of a reason to go invest in how I can actually trade there, right? So, you know, I'm I'm certainly not an attorney or an SEC expert, but I would assume that if you're a registered investment advisor or have significant capital under management, or both, a DEX is completely off the table, right? Like you're in violation of I don't know what policies, but I'm sure in regulations, but I'm sure it's they exist. No, your counterparty is the main. Correct, exactly. And so, uh, so I think the the, the challenge is not um, the challenge is going to be how can we shoehorn in institutions into DEXs, given the current regulatory landscape. I don't think that's super valuable. I think that's going to be a very very tough uphill climb. Instead, and that's not even getting to all the other issues. You're exactly, about. that's that's just getting there. Period. Like step one, right? Instead, what I do f- believe is that there are folks out there, call them, you know, crypto specific hedge funds, right? That are they're not actually VC funds, but actual crypto hedge funds like Travis over at Eagle Guy, etc. Right? Like folks that are in the space for real. 
if you have built your hedge fund or family office or whatever from the beginning to to be crypto native or support crypto in some aspect, you've probably structured it in a way where you can you don't necessarily have the same constraints that say a registered investment advisor would actually have. Um, that to me feels where like where the folks is folks like Xerox, et cetera. That's where they can get their liquidity. Correct. From. And, and if if they try to go to your traditional asset allocators. I mean, good yeah. luck, right? Like, yeah. e- even if you're a, a, a standardized vendor and understood and you have relationships with banks, et cetera, it's even like an 18-month sales cycle to get stuff done with a lot of these folks, right? Or, or uh, get them onboarded to whatever your platform might actually be. So why not go to places like crypto-specific, crypto-native hedge funds that are already designed to be able to capitalize on these types of things? So re- real quick. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. Of course. I really appreciate it. I think it's my old neighborhood, man. Of course. I love it. Right down the street. Right down the street. <laughs> let's 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 end with an uncomfortable question. Oh boy. If you could you're on the market. Yeah. What would be your dream company to work at aside from the block? <laughs> Wait, you guys aren't hiring? Oh, man. I thought <laughs> no, this was my interview. Actually, I pretty- thought this was my interview for the job. <laughs> you're um, hired. Wow. Dream job. I would love to work for Nicholas Nassim Taleb. That would be my dream job. Why? He's so such an asshole, but he's so smart. I feel like I could learn a lot from him. Um, I'm a big fan. So that would be like dream scenario because I, I just kind of like be his like you know his executive teacher's assistant. pet. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I'll, I'll mop his floors. Like I don't care. I'm a big fan. Um, so that would be one thing. I think in in more practical terms, I don't think. Taleb is hiring at this point. Certainly not me. Um, I think more practical terms, it, it is genuinely trying to find how I can be utilized to bridge the gap between finance and technology. Yeah. And if I can do that, whether it's at a hedge fund, it's at a crypto place, it's an exchange, it's a cloud computing company, whatever, I'm on FinTech. board. Well, you right? can link this podcast at the bottom of your resume. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. Thanks so much, Joe. We appreciate you coming on. And thank you for listening. Tune in next time. Thanks. We'd like to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Cash App. Cash App has been the number one in finance on the App Store for almost two years. It was the first major peer-to-peer payments app to support Bitcoin. And it's still the fastest and easiest way to on-ramp fiat. No more waiting five days for your ACH transfer to come through. With Cash App, you can buy Bitcoin instantly. When you're ready to take full ownership of your private keys, Just use Cash App to scan an external wallet's QR code. It's really that simple. Cash App also comes with standard banking features like direct deposits and others your bank would never even consider, like Cash Card, a customizable debit card that lets you instantly save every time you use it at Lyft, Whole Foods, Chipotle, Chick-fil-A, Starbucks, Dunkin', local coffee shops, and a whole lot more. Download Cash App today from the App Store or Google Play. 